Have you ever wanted to say to God, in all due respect, Lord, you are not making any sense with what you're doing in my life right now. Have you ever wanted to say that to the Lord? Sometimes God just does not seem to make sense. As much as we try to understand Him and follow the Lord and serve the Lord, there are just times in our lives that we step back and say, God, I don't understand what you were up to and what you were doing. And I have found periodically that every time I think I do have a handle on what the Lord's doing, it looks like everything changes up in what He's doing, and I'm just totally confused about it. An ancient writing has these words, and I'm going to read them slowly. Who can fathom His mighty deeds? Who can measure His majestic power? And who can go on to recount His mercies? It is not possible to lessen or increase them, nor is it possible to fathom the Lord's wonders. When human beings have finished, they are just beginning. And when they stop, they are still at a loss. When human beings have finished, they're just beginning. And when they stop, they are still at a loss. When we think we've got God figured out, we wake up the next day only to discover that we're just beginning to understand Him. And so many times we feel like we're at a loss at comprehending Him. It is a struggle to understand God, who He is and what He's doing. What I've discovered in life, as I'm sure you have, that anything in life that's worth having, there's usually a struggle to get it. The things that come quick and easy are usually not worth that much in the long run. That the things we have to struggle for are worth having. The struggle in and of itself testifies to the value of it. And understanding God, who He is and what He is doing, is a struggle. But it is a struggle that we need to be in. It is a struggle that He calls us to. And it is a struggle well worth the time and energy. We've got to learn to look up to Him and what He is doing wherever we are in life in order to begin to comprehend what is God accomplishing. Struggle to look up. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 55, zeroing in on verse 8. As you turn there, allow me to give you the background to this passage of Scripture. The Jewish people were in exile. The vast majority of them were in the nation of Babylon. And something very interesting had, had happened over the exile period. They had left Israel, gone into Babylonian exile, and initially they were in rough shape. But the longer that they stayed in Babylon, the more they began to settle down. They began to be very proficient at commerce, and they began to make money. In fact, they began to become fairly wealthy there in exile. Exile wasn't such a bad thing after all there in Babylon. And as they got progressively wealthier, they began to feel like they didn't really need God. They could live without Him. they just stay in Babylon and make money like they were making money and everything was going to be okay. 
And Isaiah the prophet comes on the scene, and Isaiah in the 55th chapter is imploring the people, you guys have gotten too comfortable where you are. You've gotten money, you don't think you need God anymore, and you need to repent, you need to turn around, and you need to come back to the city of Jerusalem. And you need to reestablish yourself there. And so this is what he's speaking to in Isaiah 55. And I'm going to begin with verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to zero in on verse 8. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now, what he's speaking of here when he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, is you are thirsty for God. You don't realize you're thirsty for God, but that's who you're thirsty for because God created the human soul to thirst for Him. Now, what they were doing is trying to take a spiritual thirst and satisfy it with material stuff. And he's saying, you're thirsty for God even though you don't realize it, and you're trying to quench that thirst with your material stuff. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, what he's doing here is a play on words. He's saying... Yeah, you've got the material stuff, but you do not have what is needed to satisfy your soul. You don't have any money when it comes to your soul and satisfying your soul. So come. Notice the verbs there. Come, buy, eat. Come. Keeps using that word again. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for what does not satisfy? He's basically saying to his people, you guys are working, and yeah, you got the stuff, but the stuff's not satisfying you. You're as empty as you've ever been. You're as hungry deep down on the inside as you've ever been. And I'm trying to give you something that's going to satisfy who you are in the depths of who you are instead of this materialism that isn't going to accomplish anything. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast sure love for David. So he's inviting them into this everlasting covenant that he has made with David in ages gone by. He's going to renew that and that covenant of course is the new covenant that Jesus instituted into a relationship with him. Now let's go to verse 8. Because this is where he's saying, if you're going to get in touch with me and what I'm doing in your life, people, then this is what you've got to do. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And my sermon outline is included in your bulletin. I invite you, if you would, to follow along with me. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. Now, what does he mean here by thoughts? First of all, understanding where he's coming from on this. We think and decide and take action inside of the immediate context of our lives. 
In other words, when we make decisions every day about what we're going to do, where we're going to go, when we make larger decisions, what we tend to do is we make those decisions in the context of where we are in that day or where we are in that season of life. God doesn't operate that way. God makes decisions and He takes actions based on eternity and He is not confined like we are. And part of the reason that God's thoughts and ways are so different from ours and so higher than we are is because He is operating out of an entirely different context than we are. We are operating out of this narrow, small context. He is operating out of eternal context. So when God goes to work in my life, He is not working in my life in in terms of the next 24 hours or the next 24 days or even the next 24 years. He is working in our lives in the context of what He is accomplishing for eternity, which is a much, much greater context than what we're used to. And so, so many times when we look at God and we say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. It doesn't make sense to me. The reason is the context for us is so small and the context for Him is eternal. And so what we've got to learn to do is translate ourselves into His context and say, you know, God's doing something here. I can't comprehend it. I don't understand it. But God's doing something, and I've got to just trust Him that what He's doing is out of the larger context of life and out of the larger context of eternity instead of out of the small context of what I've got. Now, it says here that He says, My thoughts aren't your thoughts. Now, just think about that for a moment. The Lord looks at us and He says, Listen, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. I'm not thinking about your life. Chances are the same way you're thinking about your life. I'm not thinking about the flow of life the same way you are. So we can just establish the groundwork from number one at the beginning that God's not looking at our lives the same way probably we're looking at them. So our job is not to try to talk God into our sphere, into our narrow area, and talk Him into thinking the way we want Him to think about us. Our job is to say, Lord, i got to adjust to you, not you adjust to me. And if we're not careful, a lot of times in prayer, what we're trying to do is get God to adjust to us instead of going to the Lord in prayer and saying, God, help me to adjust to you. And where there's the differential between what God is doing and how we want Him to adjust to us where we are, that's where the friction comes. That's where the frustration comes. And that's where the confusion comes. Now, the word thoughts there has three basic ideas in the original Hebrew language of this passage. So let's look at them. Number one, it is the idea of imagination. God is saying... When I imagine life, when I imagine your life, my imagination about you is not the same as your imagination about you. Now, when you think of imagination, the idea of creativity comes. Imagining is all about being creative. And God is saying, when I imagine about life, my creativity begins to flow. My mind is a, the mind of God is a creative mind. Just go back and look at the the book of Genesis when God began to create. When God started creating trees, He didn't get hung up on oak trees, and that's all He created was oak trees. It was oaks, and it was poplars, and and sycamores, and you name it. God's just going crazy because that's the creative mind of God. When He went to do flowers, He did the same thing. When He went to do seasons, I mean, God just doesn't get stuck on doing things one way and just keeps on repeating Himself. He is just filled with creativity. So he says here that my thoughts 
are not your thoughts. And part of the reason God's saying this is don't take it as personal, but I'm a whole lot more creative than you are when I start thinking about life. And when I work in your life, I'm going to be very creative in what I am doing when I think about you and I want to work in your life. And that's one of the reasons that God does not allow us to stay in comfort zones very long. Have you noticed that? Every time you and I get comfortable at a place in life, what happens? Change happens. And why is that? Because God is so creative, and He wants us to live in the flow of His creativity. So God is saying to us, I'm at work in your life, and I'm imagining about your life, but you've got to move with me in that, and you've got to move with me in the creativity of what I'm doing. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, when I was growing up as a kid, I used to think it was a little patch of land out in the back. You know, he had some tomatoes growing and a few things like that, and that was the Garden of Eden. Uh, biblical archaeologists in their study have believed that it was an er area that took up what would be like today, modern-day Iraq and Iran. So this was not the Garden of Eden. It was nice some little teeny patch in the backyard. You're talking thousands of miles he put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To, to discover the creativity of what he had put in the garden and to begin to live that out. And that's what God is doing in our lives. Second idea behind my thoughts. It means to evaluate something as to whether it's right or wrong. How do we evaluate? We evaluate based on the God's Word. We evaluate based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. I don't evaluate what's right and wrong based on what's popular. I understand what's right and wrong based on the Word of God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Next, the third idea in this idea of His thoughts is understanding what is valuable. Understanding what is truly valuable and placing value on the things that God places value on. Placing value on the things that God places value on. Years ago, I think I was a college student, I had someone share a quote with me that I have never forgotten, and I remind myself of usually at least once or twice a week. They said this, Live your life for the people who will have a front row seat at your funeral. Live your life for the people who will have a front row seat at your funeral. And so when I go to make decisions, one of the first questions I ask is what is my wife or my son going to think about me in making this decision? What are they going to say about me the day that they put lower my body in the ground? Because the folks who had the front row seat at your funeral are really the only crowd you need to be worried about you're playing to. A lot of us spend a whole lot of time trying to impress people who don't really care about us, who aren't going to be around when you know, this life is drawn to a close. And we don't pay a whole lot of attention to the people who really do love and care about us, who are going to be with us to the end. So live your life. For the people who are going to have a front row seat at your funeral, it helps us to understand where the value is. One of my favorite stories in the life of Jesus is when Jesus went into a little town called Gardea. 
And there was a guy up in the cemetery who was filled with demons. And he was running through the cemetery screaming and hollering and cutting himself. He was a mess. And everybody avoided the cemetery because of the freak who was running around up there screaming and hollering and filled with demons. Jesus comes to town, and what does Jesus do? I could, can you imagine being one of his disciples that day? In the distance, you can hear the screaming and the hollering, and you're thinking, well, one place I know we're not going to go is up into the cemetery where the guy's screaming and hollering and filled with demons. And so Jesus begins to walk through town, and, you, and the, the hollering gets louder and louder because you're getting closer and closer to the cemetery. And so as a disciple, you're starting to think, you know, this is, this is getting a little nervous here. Where is he taking us? And then you begin to realize that, that you're headed to the cemetery, and then your blood pressure starts picking up. He's taking us straight in there to encounter this guy. And I can imagine that if you'd have put blood pressure cuffs on the disciples that day, they would have blown right off as they got closer to the cemetery. They were getting so nervous. And Jesus walks in there, and then he starts heading right for the guy. And can you imagine what he looked like? He's bleeding. He's cut. He's screaming his head off. He's got pus on him. He stinks the whole bit. And Jesus heads right to him, and he walks up to the man, and he speaks into the man's life, and he delivers the man from the power of darkness. At the end of the story, it says the man is sitting clothed and in his right mind. But what was Jesus trying to say? He was saying a lot there about the, his power over the power of darkness. But one of the main things Jesus was saying is that guy stunk, that guy was a mess, that guy was controlled by darkness, and I valued the man. I valued him so much that I'm going to go into that town, I'm going to walk straight through that town, and I'm going to walk straight to that cemetery, straight up to that man, and I'm going to change that man's life because that man is important to me, and that man is, means the world to me, and that man's got value to me. Everybody else in town would have thought Jesus was out to lunch because they had all given up on the guy. And you see... When we start thinking his thoughts, we start valuing what he values. Not what the culture values, but what he values. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Then notice next, he says, my ways are not your ways. The word ways there has two basic meanings to it. Number one, it is the idea of a road that is well trod. It is the idea of a habit He's saying, my habits, my repeated decisions in the same direction. See, our lives are formed off of repeated decisions that we make in the same direction. And he's saying, my way is that road that you go down, that way you keep making the same decisions in the same way. My ways aren't your ways. The second idea was to string a bow. It's the idea, if any of you are into archery... It's the way you string the bow and you hold it so that the way the bow is strung, the arrow is advanced in a specific direction. And what he's saying here is the direction, the aim of your life. He's saying the way I aim things, the way I, what I'm shooting for, what the target is, is not the same target that you have. So the decisions you make Repeated decisions you make, the way you string your life, the way you aim your life, he's saying is not the same as mine. I've got something else often that I am doing. When I was pastoring, 
in Powhatan outside of Richmond. We had a couple in our church who worked for the International Mission Board. And they had a daughter and a son who were feeling called of God to go into international missions. In particular, they felt called to go, into, go to the Middle East. So they went through the training and preparation with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, and they were appointed missionaries to the Middle East. Now, because of the security concerns, we were never told what nation they were in. They could not tell anybody what they were in, what country they were in because of security. But they went over there, and they began to engage in some really successful ministry in that particular nation. He began to connect with some of the guys in the area, her with ladies and young couple, being used of God there in the Middle East. Then she began to develop chronic issues with low blood pressure. And they went to doctor after doctor and medication after medication. And they had to come back off of the field. And the doctors could not figure out why the blood pressure was so chronically low. They couldn't seem to get it up. And they had to reach a place to say that the International Mission Board had to say, well, we can't put you back on the mission field because of this low blood pressure issue. And they were devastated. Understandably so. God, we felt like you were calling us into international missions. We went to this country. We began to meet the people, get to know the people. We began to establish ministry there. And now the dream is over. Has that ever happened to you in some capacity? You felt like God had called you somewhere, had a work for you to do, you got moving in it, and then you hit a brick wall for some reason. You're like, God, what are you up to in this? Well, they relocated to North Carolina. And they got attached to a new church plant in the Raleigh-Durham area. A new church plant that's focusing on internationals that have moved to the Raleigh-Durham area. And they are now there in that new church plant ministering to internationals, some of whom are from the Middle East. God redirected how he was going to use them. You see, his ways were not their ways. And it wasn't that God wasn't using them anymore. It was just that God was going to use them in a different place and in a different way than they thought that God would use them. Be sensitive to that. Learning to live his attitude to honor him, his ways... Let me give you these ideas, okay? First of all, he's going to call you to the way of humility versus the way of drama. He's going to call us to the way of peace versus the way of conflict. He's going to call us to the way of rest versus anger. He's going to call us to the place of forgiveness versus resentment. And he's going to call us to the place of adventure versus complacency. Now, how, you, how do we discern his ways and his thoughts? Because God doesn't want us just to get frustrated and just give up. How do we discern his ways and his thoughts? Let me give you a few ideas. Number one, take a serious look at his word. Every day. Take a serious look at His Word every day. If we want to discern Him, this is where the discerning starts. And the book of Proverbs, I think, is one of the greatest places to start the discerning process. Number two, 
Listen to the promptings, the nudging of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this is hard to explain. I wish I could... You know, nice way to put it out there, okay? (laughs) I don't. As you're in the Word, the Spirit of God, over time, will create inside of you a sensitivity to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I wish I knew how to explain this better, but there's a certain mystery to this, okay? Because there's a certain mystery to God. But the Spirit of the Lord will nudge you in certain ways, prompt you in certain ways. It'll always be in agreement with Scripture. But you'll know, because God is persistent, it's in line with Scripture, it will always honor Jesus. Those are basically the three criteria you've got to work with. Alignment with the Word, honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. And He'll prompt you, and He will be persistent in that prompting. And He'll make it clear. Third, the council of mature believers. The council of mature believers. Now, please hear me on this. The tendency that most of us have is to surround ourselves with people who agree with us and who are sort of where we are in life. And I understand that. But I can't stress this enough. When we go to make decisions and get counsel, we need to get some people in our lives who are farther down the road than we are, often much farther down the road than we are in our walk with the Lord. And we need to receive counsel, wise counsel from them. If I'm just surrounded by people who see things my way and where I am in my own spiritual life, I'm not going to grow very much. But if I am surrounded, get some people in my life that I can listen to that have been at this longer than I've been at this and walking closer with the Lord than I am, they can provide me with some wise counsel. Next, practice the presence of the Lord. And what I mean by that is don't look to feel the presence of God. The Scriptures do not talk about feeling the presence of God. They accept the presence of God as a reality So the idea is not that I try to feel the presence of God. I assume His presence because the Scripture promises it. But rather I say, Lord, I want to sit in Your presence for a while. I want to walk in Your presence for a while. And folks, part of what I'm saying is is this is a daily practice, but there are particularly some times in life when we just really need to get alone with the Lord and say, God, I need to hear from You. I'm hearing from all other kinds of stuff. And I know in my life sometimes I have a lot of static in my life and the amount of static I've got going on for whatever reasons really messes me up in hearing clearly from God. And so I've got to get alone with God and say, Lord, I need the static washed out right now so that I am focusing on you and I'm making sure I'm hearing from you and not from the static. Let me tell you what the static will do. The static, if we're not careful, will take what we want and twist it into us making it we think it's God. In other words, I want something so bad that I talk myself into God's telling me this. And that's what the static does. And part of getting the static out is saying, Lord, I'm going to hear from nobody but you, not even myself on this. And I'm going to do this as long as I've got to be quiet before you so I start hearing from you. And yeah, final thing I want to say to you is get used to the mystery of God. We Westerners have a hard time with that because we just want to take God and compartmentalize Him and analyze Him and feel like we control Him. But there is a mystery to God. And sometimes obedience is just saying, Jesus, I love you and I'm going to follow you and I'm going to be obedient to you even though I don't understand it.
the day of Jesus' resurrection. And I shared this story at Tommy's funeral on Thursday. Two disciples were making their way to the little village of Emmaus. And they were downhearted because Jesus had died and they thought he was the Savior and he was going to be the next king and overthrow the Roman Empire and the whole nine yards. And they didn't know about the resurrection. They had heard about it, but it totally confused them. And Jesus comes along beside them and they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And Jesus walks up to them and he says, You guys really look like you're down depressed. What's eating you? And they look back at him and they say, haven't you heard what's going on? And he's just sort of playing with them. And he says, what are you talking about? And they said, well, there was this guy named Jesus and he healed people and he, he loved people and he had all kinds of power and we thought he was the Messiah and the, and the king, etc. But they took him and they beat him and they crucified him. And then today we got women coming to us telling us he's risen from the dead, which further complicates everything. We can't figure out what's going on. And Jesus begins to talk to them, and they begin to listen. And it says Jesus started with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. He started with Moses, then went to the prophets, and it's a sermon, I think, for the ages I would have given anything to have listened to, and he explained who he was. Now catch this. They kept listening, and they kept walking, and they kept listening, and they kept walking, and they kept listening, and they kept walking, and they kept listening, and they kept walking. And then they said to Jesus, could, they still didn't recognize who he was, but their hearts were burning inside of them. They kept wanting to hear more and more and more, and they kept walking and walking and listening and talking and listening to him and walking with him. And they said, would you have lunch with us? And he said, yeah, I will. And they got to the table, and they began to eat, and they were listening more, and then they recognized, it's Jesus. What am I trying to say to you? Keep on walking with him. Keep on listening to him. Keep on walking. Keep on listening. As long as he's got something to say, we need to listen. As long as he's walking, we need to keep on walking. Because that's when we will start understanding him. If those disciples... Ten minutes into it had said, well, we didn't heard enough, we're going home. They'd have missed out on him. If 30 minutes later they'd have said, well, we're worn out with this, we're not going to go any farther. They'd have missed out on it. But it's because they stayed at it. They realized he was alive, he was well, and he had something in store for them. Keep on walking, keep on listening. And as the old Negro spiritual said, every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. Stay at it. And you'll learn His thoughts and His ways. Let's pray.